Welcome to Shovel Talk, a podcast for economic developers. From your friends at the Golden Shovel Agency. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Shovel Talk. I am one of your hosts, Bethany Quinn. I am the Vice President of Strategy and Content Development for Golden Shovel. And I am joined today by my lovely co-host, Amanda, who is going to tell us where in the world she is as well. So Amanda, take it away. Yes. So uh, I, as you probably heard last time, I, I've been in uh, Mexico for the last about three months. Uh, I was in San Jose del Cabo. And I just a few weeks ago moved about an hour north of really neat little town that I learned about while in, in uh, San Jose del Cabo uh, called Todos Santos. And I'm really excited about it. And I love sharing about it because it actually has a little bit of a, like an economic development twist to it. So there are these towns in Mexico called uh, Pueblo Mexicos. And so they're called, they're called magic towns. Sounds way better in Spanish, but <laughs> um, they basically are able to apply for this Pueblo Mexico designation from the government. And uh, there's different things that they have to, um, different requirements they have to meet, like having a certain population, uh, having certain efforts in tourism. But basically, if they are awarded this designation from the government, they get funding to improve infrastructure and promote tourism in their area. So Toto Santos is actually a town that has gotten this designation. It's been really neat to actually be here when they just opened up a new road in the town and just to kind of see this uh, this town, the, the growth and hear about the growth from locals and from people I'm meeting and hear about how much it's changed in the last few years um, after getting that designation. So there's about 130 towns on this list of Pueblo Mexicos. So I'm really excited to be in one and to kind of see it before it really has its, its big boom. Tulum uh, is actually a town that has been on the list for quite a while. And so they kind of, they're saying that Toto Santos is the next Tulum, which, uh, which Tulum is kind of a hot spot in Mexico for um, vacationers. So that's exciting, Amanda. That's really cool. So I'll be here for another, uh, actually about almost another week. And then it's, it's off to, uh, to the next location, which I'm sure we'll reveal on another call. <laughs> Stay tuned people. So, uh, on to our podcast episode, we're so excited to have Mark Lawman on the podcast today. He is an author, a speaker, and an economic architect. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, coming to our podcast from New Mexico. Welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. So I was hoping that you could start by filling people in on what led you to economic development in the first place, because it certainly was not a normal trajectory. In fact, I believe that it began with swimming. Yeah, I guess you could say that. I mean, I, I got a really heavy dose of kind of goal setting technology as a you know, junior high school, high school student swimming for these uh, these two coaches in Seattle. And it, it turned out that a guy named Lou Tice, who was our football coach at, at the high school, Highline High School, was kind of the pioneer for a lot of what's in Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, where, you know, it's techniques for goal setting and visualization and things like that, how to quiet down the subconscious and keep it from sabotaging you, things like that. But, you know, it was, these guys were on the cutting edge of how you set goals 
and how you manage the psychology, your own, your own internal psychology around setting goals. And, you know, when we were, we were swimmers and we were, we were swimming twice a day when, and, and trying to get on get swimming scholarships and maybe get on the Olympic team. So it was a serious swimming program. And they just basically taught us cutting edge technology for, for setting goals. But, you know, back in 1966, nobody was doing this stuff. And then the other thing was a visualization. The first step into economic development was in college, I was taking economics. I wanted to be an economics major. The math got too hard. So I switched to architecture because I could draw. And as I got into further into the architecture program, I, I realized that on the urban planning side, they're doing all this work around land uses and street grids and what the streetscape should look like. And, and architects in general have this idea that it's pretty arrogant, that you can change how people behave by designing, redesigning the space that they're in. And so I was sitting there in a class one day, listening to all this urban planning stuff in a, in a, in a studio. And I was, I was wondering why, if you're going to go to trouble of, of figuring out what the land use mix is, why wouldn't you also take a crack at trying to figure out what the economy should be that's going to have to amortize all this stuff that you're going to build? And one of the professors said, yeah, it's an interesting idea. They do that over in geography, you know, mm-hmm. with economic geography. But that was the first time I thought, you know, they're missing, they're missing something here. Why couldn't you design the economy that you're going to need? for Mm -hmm. all the people that are going to live there. And it wasn't until later that after uh, coaching swimming and running, you know, I had had my own construction company and did some other things. And I did this exhaustive analysis of myself. I literally spent six months on a deep dive introspection of, you know, I did stuff like make a matrix with all my interests across the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the on the x-axis and so where interest and skill intersects is that a job eventually i i ended up focused on this economic development business somebody said you know they have these jobs where cities hire you to go in and fix their economy when a plant leaves or things aren't working right and there are these organizations that'll hire you to fix the economy I, well, that looks interesting it scored the highest of anything that i've looked at and nice. then i went out and and I said, well, I better figure this out because most of the time, what I thought the job was, was really different than what it was. And so one of the things I did was I'd go out and and find people that had economic development jobs and I would interview them. I'd say, look, I'm writing an article on the profession and I want to come and shadow you for a day. And I'm going to ask you about 30 questions about the field and how you got into it and everything. As I did that, I just got more and more convinced that this was a really good thing for me to be doing and that I might actually be able to do it and be successful. Mm-hmm. You said a couple of things that I, I really want people to latch on to. So in your own personal life, for one, it really started with goal setting. It started with reflection, taking that time. And I think what really stood out to me when you talked about that spreadsheet, because that's something most people don't do, is that you got out of systems one thinking into systems two. You got out of those emotional responses and those heuristic shortcuts, those biases that inform our decisions every day. And you forced yourself to actually do the analysis. And I, I believe as you go into your work experience, that's something people are going to see a common thread for. When I got into high school, it was right in the middle of the Vietnam War. And if you couldn't get to college, you were going overseas and, and you were going to come back either killed or messed up. And 
for me, the only way to get to college was get a swimming scholarship. And so I had my whole world boiled down to whether I could get to college or not. If I could, I'd be okay. And if I couldn't, I might not make it. And my coaches kind of reinforced it. They said, you know, you can't get into college if you don't have at least a 2.2. And you're going to have to be close to a minute and 100 breaststroke if you want a scholarship, full ride. So I, had, I boiled everything down, whether I was going to be successful, a successful human being or not, down to one parameter. And that was, could I get up in the morning at 4.30 when my alarm went off? And we were swimming twice a day. So we're swimming like 12,000 yards a day. You know, I think I think that plus my dad was an engineer at Boeing and his, his and his group would come over and they take over the house, the living room and dining room about twice a year and map out, do a critical pass for the new plane they were going to build at Boeing. Then I realized something as insanely complicated as designing and building and getting flight tested a, a new airplane. It's really pretty simple. It's just all these little pieces that you have to have the right piece in the right place and the right time, as long as you take the time to kind of map it all out and have it set up so you can, if you don't get this done, then it pushes off when you're going to get that done. So that was my preparation. And it, it was really good preparation for an economic development job. And then after my first job, I land in these master plan community companies doing the economic development for these big master plan, 100,000 population new cities that were, we were building. So it was just, we had clean slates and control sure. of most of the factors of production. You're reminding me of uh, my favorite uh, high performance coach, Brendan Bouchard. He talks about how every, every goal can really be boiled down into five major moves and you break out those five major moves and, and you really have a blueprint for success. And I love what you're saying because that really just goes back to some things I've been studying over the last uh, couple of years. And so I, I'm sitting there on the pool deck trying to coach swimmers and they come, come up after every race and go, okay, coach, how'd I do? And most of the coaches around us, we're all sitting together and pool deck talk to our various swimmers. We could tell a kid what his stroke rate was and what his distance per stroke was on every race. And then we take that back to the pool and we could tell you, if you want to go under two minutes, you want to be the first person under two minutes in the world in the 200 butterfly, there's only like five combinations of distance per stroke and tempo. Pick one and then train for that. So if you can figure out the essential things that actually drive success, if you can boil it down to something and you, you can figure out how to exert control on that or manage it, the odds of being successful are going to increase every day. You have said a few minutes ago, the right piece at the right place at the right time. Is that the methodology that you take to any community that you've worked with, trying to figure out what that, that piece, the place, and the time is? Eventually, you have to lay out what they call, you used to call it PERT chart, Program Evaluation Review Technique, but it's like a critical path thing, like on Microsoft Project. So let's say your economic development goals include having to recruit a new call center every year, at least one, okay? And let's say their average is 400 jobs per. And to get one a year, you're gonna have to be in the finals. You're gonna have to be at the goal line on five because you're gonna lose four. So you're gonna get one out of every five. So your marketing effort has to produce enough leads so that you're a finalist for five deals a year, which you probably need prospects and have be kind of in the hunt for 25, mm -hmm. which is one every two weeks. 
So that kind of starts framing your marketing, what's your marketing have to deliver, and how many sales teams do you need to advance these from a lead to a suspect to a prospect to a deal. And then you're gonna have all these completion issues for the deals you do. And then you look at the real estate. Well, every other year we're gonna have an empty building because they leave after seven years. So every other year we're gonna need a new one to replace uh, an empty building. The other years, the odd years, we're going to need a new site and a build-a-suit capability. And it's going to need to be priced right. It's got to be, it's got to be in the right location, blah, blah, blah. So once you iterate what your goals are and you know that you're going to want to do ten, a call center every year for 10 years, you can start getting really prescriptive about sure. how much real estate you need, how mm-hmm. much capital you're going to need, what kind of, you know, how many workers with what skills you're going to need, where they're going to live, you're going to have the housing. So all of the capacity that has to be in place for each each year for the transactions you want to see happen, if you iterate them, you can predict what you're going to need. You can tell if you're where you're short. Nobody does that. We're assuming somebody's going to go get the real estate that the real estate community is going to respond, or the banks are going to be there for the funding. And I just don't think a you don't see it and you can't manage it if you don't do this planning. It's an extreme amount of planning compared to what most people are doing now. Well, and it's interesting because we are coming out of a pandemic that has been a huge economic and industry disruptor. As we know, things like office space, we're not sure what the future of office space looks like, right? So I guess, what do you say to economic developers who do want to plan or maybe have planned in the last couple of years and now they're really not sure how to proceed because we don't know what's happening next. What do we do, Mark? How do we plan? You, you start with, can you predict how many jobs you think you're going to need first? In economic development, we'd be embarrassed if we had to go on Shark Tank. Imagine you're on Shark Tank and are asking for money to support your economic development effort. Well, how many jobs do you need to create to be a healthy economy in five years or 10 years? Well, we're not sure. Everybody's going to say, I'm out. Most of us can't answer the basic questions. How many jobs do you need to create? How many of those have to be economic based? What program approaches can deliver those jobs? Because there's more than one way to create economic based jobs. You can recruit them. You can expand companies. You can start them up. You've got tourism. You got five different ways to for visitors to create economic based jobs. You got the federal government creates economic based jobs. So you can have your congressional delegation. So there's all of these. And now there's remote work. Mm-hmm. So you don't even need the buildings anymore. Sure. So you could, you could actually create all the jobs you need without building another building because people can work out of their houses. now. So all of a sudden real estate's now your residential real estate. But until you iterate, how many jobs do we need and iterate how many transactions per job, you know, they can't improve the system. If you convene a group with a bunch of non-nuanced thinkers in it, kind of common sense, people that don't really aren't steeped in the statistics of whatever it is you're asking, they'll be right 93% of the time. So you actually get a better result, you get better validation, and you get consensus if you mm-hmm. got the right people in the room. So that was one of the big epiphanies we had was you could get clarity about what you need to do and consensus in the same meeting if you structure it right. Yeah, that stakeholder engagement piece is so critically important. I know that we found uh, when you do it right, then you also have cheerleaders, ambassadors who help you to carry that plan out, which can really make a huge difference. The, pro- the problem that most of us have, have and continue to have is that you can come up with the right plan. You can get a group of people together, come up with a plan that'll work. 
but then you got to spend all this energy going out and selling it. And then by by the time you got the planning done, you're tired and you want to just do it. And you still got to go out and fund it and staff it and execute it. I just think it's so much cleaner to just do the planning in a big group and force everybody through it at least once. After the plan is done, if you do it right, if you set it up right, all you have to do is go back and tweak pieces. And we're going to have to, as fast as everything's changing, we're going to have to do our five-year plans every five months. I think uh, you just heard the pin drop. I think you just scared everybody listening. (laughs) It's a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah, it is. But I think it it might not even be worth it if AI wasn't coming to help Mm -hmm. us. Almost everything you can conceive of to engineer an economic development strategy or get yourself a swimming scholarship someday or build an airplane, the machines are going to be able to quell the complexity and deal with the speed at which everything's changing. And the way you prepare for the future is planning. So it should make planning exponentially more valuable. Speaking of uh, you know the future and planning, uh, you actually forecasted the future in a book you, you wrote called When Boomers Bail. So can you tell us a little bit about that, uh, how the book came to be, and, and your forecast of the future there? So the book is about inverted labor supply reality that was predictable 10 years ago, 15 years ago, really. So 10, 12 years ago, I'm looking at a Bureau of Labor Statistics site and I see these crossing line curves on workforce and jobs. It was predicting that we were going to run out of labor like sometime after 2011. The the economy would continue to, to demand more jobs, but the number of workers coming into the market were not going to be enough. My generation was the first generation in human history not to have enough kids to replace ourselves. So when boomers leave and this small class of unprepared come in to take our places, there's a workforce shortage. That was the scenario that I saw. And then I went over to Sandia National Laboratories here in Albuquerque and found a couple of physicists that were working in a group called the Advanced Concepts Group, working on complex systems. I asked Jerry Jonas, who's the head, head of this thing. He'd been the, the head of the Star Wars program for Reagan. Anyway, I go, hey, Jerry, is this scenario, this workforce shortage thing for real? And he goes, yeah. He said, you just broke the code, man. The, the Department of Energy has 188,000 employees in 43 three-letter agencies. And 70% are eligible to retire in three years. And we don't have a plan. That's what led to starting up this think tank. How does, how does this shortage of labor change the physics of the site selection business? As soon as the book came out, we had the Great Recession underway. So it was like, well, I man, you're trying to tell us the problem with economic development is we're running out of labor and we have 14 million of our countrymen out of work? Give me a break. You know, the reason you hire people like me to come in and, and put together an economic development program is to create more jobs. And all of a sudden you realize, what if you're full employment? You could go recruit all day long. You're not going to be able to get anybody. You could start up companies left and right. And the economies, they're just going to steal talent from someplace else. You're not going to get more jobs per person to serve. You're out of business. Right. I, right. I actually uh, manage an economic development program in, in rural Northern California. And we saw, you know, that, that our, um, we had a huge agriculture industry and we saw that, you know, we did, we did not have the next generation coming up learning about how uh, you know learning what they need to to fill to fill those jobs and yeah i mean we you know we started partnering with the the local school system to start doing you know some welding classes and things like that to support the agriculture industry but you know i guess the question is you know what can we do right now is it too little too late what do economic developers do to prepare for this 
Well, it's never too late. And the problem now is really serious in most places. In fact, I would say most places in the U.S. are facing are, are in a situation where their biggest problem is there's not enough qualified workers. So all of this recruiting, all this stuff that we do as a profession is inert if there's no integrated parallel workforce solution. We don't have the two systems organized or managed so that they can match up and and solve the problem. And so that's why I think everything in this think tank exercise the last 10 years, every problem we came up with, every solution we came up came back around to we don't have a good enough or strong enough planning process. It's really more than most people that are sitting in an economic development job have time to think about and do. So you really need a separate think tank. Every town ought to have one of these think tanks, just thinking about all this stuff and trying to frame it and get the thinking and the planning done so that the doers have an increased probabilities that the things that they need in place are going to be there. So how do you think, you know, COVID and, and the kind of remote work boom, the move affects the, the forecast that you, that you made there? Well, I, th- I think the conventional wisdom now is that all the things that we knew were going to happen in the next 10 to 15 years are going to happen faster because of the pandemic. Could you recruit remote workers? And then could you convert somebody that's doing websites? Could you get them to export what they're doing? Convert somebody from being service sector to economic base, that would count to grow the economy. And, you know, it's stuff like that that, you know, we were really forced into doing it. We've almost been forced into focusing on on remote worker attraction. And so you think that actually could could start to maybe help this issue that's been forecasted? Well, this brings up another issue that we think is is a problem. There's not a clear enough connection between your program efforts and the results. Are your efforts actually procuring new economic base jobs that would otherwise not happen? You can develop policies that attract and reward the kind of economic base activity that you want, but you're going to need the houses, you're going to need a system. You know, It's one thing to say, we'll give you a tax rebate if you come, and actually going out and manufacturing those jobs at a predictable rate. We think economic development efforts could and should be more prescriptive and more on the procuring end, where you case manage the thing all the way through, and you can say with certainty that those jobs would never have happened had you not run the program. And that's a big credibility problem with, with the whole profession right now. Yeah, we ran into that quite a bit uh, running the program in California. It was always that question of, well, did, were you really the cause of this business moving in and, and things? That can definitely be tough for economic developers to to hear. And we put a lot of, of effort in, into making sure we create a, an environment for these businesses to land and, and be successful. What's really tricky is when your boards or your your governors and mayors insist on taking credit for everything that happens, what it does is it creates a really serious problem, which is, let's say you need 100 jobs a year. And right now you're getting 50 jobs a year organically without any, you would get those no matter what, the real estate brokers would bring them in. If your program that you're spending a million dollars on is taking credit for the all jobs that are being created, all of them, then the pr- presumption is with another million, we could do 150, when in reality, you're only gonna do 25 more. Anyway, it just, and the whole uh, incentive game at the national level has gotten out of hand. And it, so most people don't think what we're doing actually works. 
And if they did, they'd be giving us more money and they're not. And economic developers would be making way higher salaries if they could prove that what they're doing actually causes the jobs to happen. And the only way to do that is plan it out and put all of the factors of production under management. Well, I think that you did bring up a good point on the optimism side of things. <laughs> and that's that if you do take the time to plan appropriately, then it may be possible to actually prove that what you're doing is effective. Yeah, yeah. You know, we didn't know when we started. We thought it looked impossible because it was too complicated, but it's not. Well, and I think you mentioned earlier how technology is helping us to bring these things together and to make some of these calculations. But, you know, you really do raise a good point, and that's that we have to work together. And too often, I think, in the industry, we do have different siloed groups, obviously, who have different funding sources, similar objectives and goals, but the communication and the collaboration needs to be improved to increase our effectiveness. And so when you talk about, you know, the different types of economic based jobs, not every economic developer is going to be trying to create all 10, right? Right. So we got to get better at working together. Yeah. And I think it's just if a community can decide that it wants to manage all of its economic development efforts, because economic development, not just about the economic base mm-hmm. or, or manufacturing, or, and, and then you have all these services that, have, that the community needs and they create jobs too. So that's part of economic development too. And you, if you just consider it all one thing and, and then you let these programs just go out and claim they're doing it all and you don't force everybody to use some common metrics, then what you end up with is, is this situation we're in now where you have all these little programs competing with each other for a shrinking pie. You know, whether it goes to this part of town or that part of town or this part of the metro area, this part of the metro area, it, it doesn't matter. It's the economic base. We should all be working together. Sure. There's three things you have to know to know how many jobs you have. How many you need for attrition? How many you need to close up your current unemployment gap? And how many do you need for any population growth you're going to have? You add those three, divide by how many economic base jobs there are to for every service sector job, and you get your number. And I got now you got a number, and you can estimate it's higher or lower by changing one of those three. So in case anybody listening missed it. Mark is telling you to plan. (laughs) That is the core theme of today. Make a plan and make sure it is detailed, you know, where you can literally pull out various components and change them as needed, but make that plan. Um, I do also want to make a comment. We are privileged at Golden Shovel to work with a lot of industry leaders, people who, uh, like you, have identified problems um, and issues both, you know, with the industry or with their own individual economies and are working to make positive change. So one of the things that we love is hearing ideas and hearing insights. So, you know, as Mark mentioned, there is a lot that does need to change that, you know, we need to continue to improve. Every industry does. So if you're listening and maybe you heard something Mark said, and you're like, hey, actually, you know, I do have an idea for this, this aspect, this aspect of the problem. We'd love for you to leave a comment, to share it with us, to reach out, because again, you know, we, we are better together. Collaboration is definitely important. Absolutely. Mark, you've mentioned a, like Think Tank a couple times and everything. Can you kind of share with us um, any of like your current projects that you're, that you're working on? Well, I'd say there's three. One is we, we've made a couple of breakthroughs recently on, on this planning model. 
So instead of think, plan, do, it's we've got three extra steps. A, uh, acronym we call TAPUMA, T-A-P-U-M-A. So it's think, assess. So you do an assessment in between thinking and planning. The planning is all the operational planning. Once the operational planning is done, if it's explicit enough, you can underwrite it mm-hmm. so that you're actually funding what you say you need to do. And you have people assigned to it. They're on the hook for it. Then managing it's relatively easy. Right away. And then once the work is being done, you, you have a reporting system that reports back, you know, so you make it a circle. It's a continuum. So the thinking on the front end is, is informed by the planning, by the accounting that you're doing. So we changed the algorithm from think, plan, do to Tapuma. The second thing we did was we completely reframed the whole economic development game into an apparatus. So instead of an EDO doing the recruiting and VR&E and then a you know, convention and visitors bureau doing, doing conventions and somebody doing tourism, the hotel, motel association and, and the, uh, the, the ski industry doing the, the tourism and the universities and doing tech transfer and somebody else doing an accelerator and, and having a remote work. Pro- instead of all the stuff being scattered around, you organize it like a mutual fund where you have different program efforts that create an, a given number of jobs every year. And, and then you watch and see how they do. And if they're not performing, you take resources and put them someplace else, but you manage it as a whole. So new, new algorithm, new framework, and then a calculus that organizes all this data, pulls it together and allows you to run what if scenarios. Unless you have developed a consensus from a broad cross-section of stakeholders, and they're all read into and bought into what the community needs to do so that whoever their representatives are can't just arbitrarily throw everything out they were doing before. How do you get that engagement and how do you get a constituency bill for supporting all this stuff, especially when it includes now all these other civic sectors like social services? Because look, most communities are actually in a situation where if they can't mine talent out of their hard to employ, chronically poor population, they're out of labor. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden getting people out of poverty, it's now an economic development strategy because if you're a business person in town, you need more money coming into your store. So you need more people with spendable income. So you need more people that are working and you need more workers. Mm-hmm. So where are you going to get them? Your poverty problem will cure both. If you're in the business of getting people out of poverty, you can't do it without jobs. So they need economic development just as bad as we need them first time in history. That's another outcome of this thing that I don't think anybody's really thought about. So getting people out of poverty is not just a good humanitarian, you know, nice thing to do, fair thing to do. It's it's an economic imperative now. So building this constituency, it's not just the business people anymore. You got to have everybody involved. But if you get everybody in a group to, to, to go through this, you end up with everybody on the same page with the same framework. You've got a whole bunch of people clued in and you got a framework and you got a chance of getting all of this stuff under management. The second thing is we, we actually got a viable minimum viable uh, program model for this remote work business and it's all automated. So it's all online. Um, we can go into almost any, any community and start creating jobs within about six weeks. The other is the opportunity zone fund program. So we've, we, the, one of the first, programs that spun out of the lab was a company we call Invest US. 
We've extended it to opportunity zones and have an opportunity zone fund. And we have a structured finance team, financial management team that's top-notch Wall Street folks managing it and are able to help a community figure out what to do with their opportunity zone. The problem is the program's really simple and and it's really compelling for someone that has a capital gain that they want to shelter income from. So if you get a big capital gain, you can take that gain and put it in an opportunity zone fund. That fund invests in projects in an opportunity zone. And over a seven-year period, the basis for all that all the tax liability reduces to almost nothing. And any money you make off of that investment is not charged capital gains down the road. So the, the return on investment goes from you know 10 or 12% up into the 30s and 40s. And the problem is you've got to make sure that the money you're investing in a zone is going into a good project. So you need all the due diligence and all the all the financial uh, security around, is it a good project? And then there's the presumption that it's an opportunity zone. Well, opportunity zones are places that haven't had any economic traction. Well, there's a reason for that. They have problems. And so you need to have, in order to get good projects, into opportunity zone. The zones have to be well-planned. The community that that zone's in or nearby has to have their act together. So you need the planning, you need the the financial deal structuring, and then the the downstream know-how and fiduciary capabilities to manage an investment fund. So that's that's what we put together. We put together a consortia that can manage the fund structure the projects, manage the fund through the, you know, the next 20 years or so and do all the planning and help the community get, get this opportunity zone thing configured as part of their economic development strategy. Wow. Those uh, sound like pretty amazing projects. We're really excited to see how things go as you're kind of developing those and, and rolling them out. So before we close up, we do have a fun little game that we that we like to play with our uh, podcast guests. We're calling it Shovel Toss. We're going to toss questions at you. So <laughs> there are 10 questions, and I'm going to just toss them at you, as, and you just answer them as quick as you can. Well, I remember Shovel Toss well when it first came out. I've been, in, I've been in your Shovel Toss contest <laughs> for 15 years. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> well, I believe this is going to be a little different than, than, uh, right, than right. but, uh, but it'll, it'll be fun. That's awesome though. <laughs> Glad to hear that. All right. So, um, and they're really just kind of get to know you questions kind of out of the box, just kind of some random, but fun stuff. So, uh, last book you read. Um, American nations. Favorite podcast. I like, I like Ray Kurzweil's singularity podcast. What's the first thing that you do in the morning? I, uh, I start the coffee. Uh, what did you want to be, be when you grew up? What did I want or what do I want now? Did, yeah. No, what, what did you, <laughs> when you were a child, what did you want to be? What was the first thing that you, that you thought you wanted to be? I, wanted, I think I wanted to be Zorro for a while. And, and then I, I kind of liked the idea of being a firefighter. Awesome. Uh, your favorite superhero and why? The Tick. <laughs> what superpower would you want and why? <laughs> I, I, I think I'd like to fly. If you could live anywhere in the world for a year, where would you live? Cinque Terre, Italy. Oh, awesome. Uh, if you could have a meal with anyone in history, who would it be with? Leonardo da Vinci. 
Ooh, good one. <laughs> Your favorite band or singer when you were a teenager? Um, kind of a toss-up between Jimi Hendrix and the Sonics. I grew up in Seattle. Uh, your most embarrassing hairstyle or article of clothing from your childhood? Man, well, it was perpetual, but we all had flat top crew cuts, and it was not it was not a good look in you know, <laughs> the sixties. Oh, that's great. I thought I thought for sure when uh, when I asked the first thing you would you do in the morning, I thought you were going to say question whether you can put your feet on the ground. <laughs> well, that was before. It was like that was that was what you had to do before you get up, though. Right, right. True. Yeah. <laughs> the embarrassing clothing thing. So I, I'm the oldest of six kids. I uh-huh. one sister, rest brothers within eight years. So six kids within eight years. And wow. My parents would take us on a driving vacation every year for three weeks. My dad worked at Boeing, had three weeks off. We're gone on a driving vacation in a station wagon, eight of us, for three weeks. And it just started when I was like, really, like when I was 10. We're, You're describing the Quinn family vacation every summer, Mark. It was like, yeah, it was like, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the movie Vacation was, was a perfect uh, metaphor for what we were going through. But my mother would dress us all in the same. It was it was just mortifying for me because I've I've got a mattress shirt and khaki pants and and Converse tennis shoes and all my all my brothers have exactly the same thing. And we're having going to all these towns, you know. I just remember going down the streets of Cody, Wyoming, to a restaurant and just going to the other side of the street to get away from them. <laughs> Uh, Bethany, do you dress all your kids up in, in similar up? I did when they were little, I confess, when they were all young, the boys all had their polos on and the girls all had their cute little dresses, but I stopped that years ago. I could imagine it'd be, you know, to keep track of everyone, it just, it may, it would make it easy to look for that same outfit, keep track of it. <laughs> I can say, I can say I never did that to my children and none of my brothers did it to theirs. Right. Well, you guys were scarred. It sound like you were. <laughs> the scarring, though, it's it was scarred us. I think. Probably. Well, Mark, thank you so much for uh, participating in our game. That was a lot of fun. I uh, always like doing that with with our guests and kind of learning a little bit more about about you there. So, thank you. <laughs> All right. All right. So this is this has been really fun. You guys are always fun, and this economic development business. It really is fun and rewarding if you if you if you can get your communities act together. And I, I think you guys are you guys have always been fun to work with. I really enjoyed that. Producer Darren here um, giving Mark Lautman a big thank you. You can check out Mark Lautman on LinkedIn at Mark Lautman, M-A-R-K-L-A-U-T-M-A-N. You can also find uh, Mark on the web at marklautman.com. And at his website is where there's a nice link to go to Amazon and purchase his book, When the Boomers Bail, A Community Economic Survival Guide. Um, Mark also, this was not mentioned on the podcast, I know he told us in our prep call, is that he is actually working on a sequel to that book. So stay tuned for that. And on more Mark news here, he is also going to be joining Golden Shovel on some upcoming webinars. Um, So we can look forward to that as well. As far as Golden Shovel social media goes, please like us on Facebook at Shovel Toss. Follow us on Twitter at Gold Shovel. Follow us on LinkedIn at Golden Shovel Agency. And please subscribe to our YouTube channel, Golden Shovel Agency. 
Amanda, myself, and Bethany will be back soon with an upcoming podcast. And also stay tuned in your inbox for upcoming Golden Shovel email blast, um, showcasing some of the new uh, content that we're pushing out. And everyone enjoy summer. It's here. And we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you.